Will the owner of the J-type post office telephone van please stand up? Who owns it? Yeah, the GPO van. No? Oh, is he in the bar? Okay. The only reason I let the driver in one. <laughs> and I glanced out the window and I thought, well, I've been beaming back about God knows how many years. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to a slightly warm Brooklyn's this evening. Um, I know there's a lot of guests here that are not members, so a very special welcome to you. Thank you all for being here and supporting the Trust. Um, now, before I introduce the guests, I've just been thrown this long list of people that are here from the motorcycle world from the past. And forgive me if I don't get this right, because we've just very quickly written it down. We've got Eric Bliss, um, who in, with, in 1955 with Eric Oliver, who understands here as well. Um, then we have, he also partnered Cyril Smith in Sidecar and Chris Vincent in 1961-1962. We had Dave Moore, 1958-61, uh, who raced the TT, and Jim Dakin, who has brought all these lovely people along, raced in 56-57 in the uh, TT, in the LBF, NV, and EMC machines. I'm nearly at the end. And to uh, Gary James, who's currently writing a book on all these extremely famous people. Now, um, just to let you know that on December the 7th, this hasn't been announced anywhere else tonight, um, I've persuaded Steve Parrish, the broadcaster and TT writer, to come back with us again. He was here two years ago. He said to me on the phone, no one ever invites me back. Only, <laughs> only to apologise, but he's coming back. So the health warning, it was a sellout last time, and I see no reason why it won't be again. So tickets go on sale on August the 17th, so uh, don't miss it. So ladies and gentlemen, without any more delay, will you please welcome the guest this evening, Jim Redman. He was so 
mixed up in his head that he couldn't um, get his head around the fact that he was alive and all his friends were dead. And in the end, they took him away and they put him on a farm to try and bring him back. And he would have had psychologists and all sorts of things today. But in those days, oh, stick it on the farm and you'll get out of it. <laughs> anyway, he, um, he got fed up with all that. So he decided to end it and he laid down next to the railway line and let the train cut his head off. And that was a bit of a shock for my mum. And uh, 3D, it just blew her mind, you know. We all talk about his mind, it blew his mind. She had a cerebral hemorrhage and she actually was gone in another three weeks later. So they left me as a 17-year-old with an 18-year-old sister and two 11-year-old twins to bring up. So um, we had quite a tough time, but we made fun of it. People would knock on the door and say, oh, I want to speak to your parents. Well, we're a bit too poor, we can't afford prayers. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we got along, we had other do-gooders come around and I told them to get knotted and they all seemed to, in the end, fade away. And we got along okay and then along came the army. And um, they said, we need you for two years, compulsory training. So they gave me four um, Excuse this, you know, they had a word for it, I've just forgotten it. And um, so I got to 20, nearly to 20, 19 year old, and um, they said, uh, well, now you have to do it. And I said, yeah, well, I've studied it, and the money that you can give me, the maximum money you can give me, just about pays for rent. So now I've got two kids over here, and I'm in the army over there. And I've got no money to because I've only just paid the rent. So how do I do it? I'll do it. You tell me how to do it. They said it's your problem. Right. So <laughs> my problem. I said, looking at you around here, you've all got loads of brain. I bet you never you saw the front line in your lives. You're a bunch of <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what you can do. You can take your army and you can stick it, and you can take your country and you can stick that well as well. And I toddled off to Rhodesia. I went back to my boss and said, I lost the plot a bit, I've insulted all these guys. He said, You've got to get out of the country, they'll get you in and they'll march you night and day till they kill you. So and he was a lieutenant colonel in the army, retired. So I got on the phone and he said, get out of the country in the next three weeks and have you in there quick, fast track. And so they said there's nothing except a vote on Tuesday. I said, no, no it was Thursday. <laughs> Tuesday, I'll go. So I, I said to him, I'm stopping work. You know, and he paid me right up to a Friday night, which I was grateful for. Sold my motorbike, because I, uh, when I was young, I had to give the money that I made to my mum when I was, um, went to work at nearly 15, and um, it's funny, I was 15 years of age, and a guy had a motorbike, a Roger Alston, 1936, a really quick bike, and he let me ride it down the yard, and I went, whoa, this is something, I've got to have some of this. So I struck a deal with my mum, she could have all the money I made at work, but I'll go um, delivering newspapers for 10 shillings a week, and that 10 shillings a week is only for motorbikes. So I buy a bike. So uh, I saved up until I was 16, got a license, and uh, got my first motorbike, an old ex army um, 350 Massless. 
So right through my life in England after that, I always did newspapers and I paid for the motorbikes. <laughs> Even when I finished paying for the bike, I then decided to get another one, trade in and more papers to be signed. And they said, well, your mum will have to sign them. And I said, well, she's not that well at the moment. <laughs> and so then I took the papers home for her to sign and I sat there and did it for her because she wasn't there anymore. And um, took it back and I thought, as long as I pay it, nobody's going to check about this money. So I paid my 10 bob every week and finished up with a 500cc um, HRD comment, which somebody coveted and um, I sold it to him for £200 on the deal that I'll give you a, a hundred and I'll take the bike and I go to Union Castle and give them a hundred for my trip to Africa. Then I'll come back and give you the bike and I took £30 for myself and left £70 to my sister and I said, look, it's going to take me a month to get there so the 70s has got to last you <laughs> until I can get there and earn some money and start sending money back again. And I got on the boat, and it was 12 people on the boat, cargo boat with 12 passengers. And they said, oh, let's get together in the pub at 6 o'clock for drinks. Hmm, 12 passengers, so they're all going to be buying round. So off I told them to the pub, what are you going to drink? Water. Well, I have a Coke or something. No, I don't like that stuff. I don't like beer. Well, I'm Scotch. No, I don't like Scotch. What do you drink? drink water, coffee and tea, because it's free on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> so I went for a month with telling these guys that I don't drink beer, and it was hot and I had some beer. And I thought, I can't afford myself, never mind buy around. And I got to Cape Town, still with almost my 30 pounds. Luckily there were some um, National Degree of Geographic guys on the, on the boat. So at Dakar they were taking pictures and I was helping and we got to Warbish Bay and stopped again and I was chasing them. They, they filmed the flamingos and then I chased them and they took them taking off. And all these little things that I did were all cost me zilch. You know. And then I got to Cape Town and I went to the railway station and they said, no trains to, we're fully booked for the next 10 days. Oh dear, yeah. so I found a hotel for about a pound and ran the chair under the doorknob and it was a, not a very salubrious hotel and I didn't want to lose my 29 quid or whatever I left. And I got to the station and I thought, oh, you idiots, you know, I got to the station, pushed a pound across and said, what's the chance of getting on today's one? Oh, no problem at all. <laughs> so um, I said, here's the 20 pounds. He said, right, there's your ticket. Now I need £3.50 for your bedding and £2.50 for your meals on the train. <laughs> Four days on the train. Oh. So I arrived in Bulawayo and met the only guy in the world that I knew out of England was a guy in Bulawayo, so that's where I went. He said there's plenty of jobs, so I landed up in Rhodesia and he came with his wife and a friend to pick me up and we stopped for coffee. And I said, I'll get this, and it was four shillings, and I had three shillings. <laughs> and they said, put your money away, big shot, you know. <laughs> so that was me, I was in Bulawayo with three bob. And uh, they said, we booked you into a residential hotel, and um, you got to pay at the end of the month, very important. So I borrowed my friend's car, 
drove to every garage and service station and um, everyone offered me a job at twice the money in England. So I chose Ford, gave the next day I started work, so I got there Monday, found a job on Tuesday, started work on Wednesday, and it was July and midwinter, and I was in shorts and hogs and fantastic, and I, I wanted to send a note of thanks to those assholes that... <laughs> <laughs> when I got on the boat and I went out from London docks, I thought, I don't really want to go. The guy's going to buy another stove, service station. He was buying a service station, and I was going to run the place. He was going to teach me about the things, because I was a top mechanic, and then I was only just coming up to 20. And I didn't want to leave England, and, you know, I was English through and through, even played soccer. <laughs> and, um, and then I went to Rhodesia, and when I got there, I thought, wow, you know, so then I worked on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then it was Saturday and Sunday, and Monday and Tuesday were roads and founders holidays. So we had Monday and Tuesday off. And my friend said, well, my myself and my wife are going to drive to Victoria Falls. Why don't you come? I said, sure, I've got a little bit of money. And they said, well, we're going, so the back seat's empty, so you can get on the back seat. And if you grab your bedding from the hotel, you can sleep in the back sheet because we are a tent. And you've got to buy your meals wherever you are. So I said, well, if you put it like that. So on the weekend, on Sunday, Saturday, we arrived at Victoria Falls, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And I changed my mind. I wanted to send a case of champagne back to <laughs> And so when I got the Raja Oscar, I got that disease that you can't get rid of, motorbike. <laughs> and then I went to Africa and I got another disease, Africa. And for all its warts and, you know, funny things have happened, like I live in South Africa now and have done since 1966, on and off when I'm home. And um, we have a world record, little old South Africa, our government, our ministers, have all been charged, 101%, all been charged with corruption. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in the world beats us. You know? We're proud of the record. 100%. Our president, when he was campaigning for president, and his campaigning was mostly dancing, he did a good dancer like this, and he doesn't say much, but he dances and gets the whole people dancing. And they love him. And while he was campaigning, he had fighting off corruption charge over here, and a rape charge, and a different cause. And he got 62% of the votes. <laughs> <laughs> if he'd done another one, he probably would have got 100%. <laughs> and uh, it was quite funny for us, but um, they said to him, the judge said to him, Mr. Zuma, when you had what you said was consensual sex with this lady, did you know she had AIDS? He said, oh yes. He said, did you take any precautions? And he said, no, but I had a good shower afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so the AIDS awareness people went back a hundred years or so. <laughs> anyway, we, we've got our government and, you know, um, one of the heavyweight guys in, in South Africa offered the tax people 300 million um, you don't ask about taxes until they're many forms. I'll just pay you 300 million. And they said, no, we want 900 million. 
So the next thing we heard after that didn't come to terms, oh, he's having an interview with our president, Mr. Zuma. And we never heard another word, so we realized that probably Mr. Zuma had 100,000 and he paid 600,000 and he was happy. But that's the sort of life we live down there at the moment, and a little bit of crime, you know. My son went to see the, to, to go to Australia, and um, they said, uh, is it really, you know, do, have you got much crime in South Africa? He said, well, in your family and business, how many people have been murdered? <laughs> oh, well, we've had three. And how many cars have you stolen or vans or whatever, vehicles? Well, none. Oh, we've had 25, so. <laughs> in fact, one day we came round the back, wheels were missing, and we thought, oh, we've had a few claims, insurance are going to hate us. So we bought two new wheels and stuck them on without reporting it, and the next day they took the front one out. <laughs> 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 no, you can't win anyway. But that's Africa, you know, Africa's a good place, but it's a funny place. <laughs> anyway, I went down there, and then I got racing, I opened my own business in Bulawayo with John Love, a well-known car driver. And then I became South African champion, which is racing in South Africa and Rhodesia, sort of a, a Southern Africa championship. And I won that in 1957. And I met a young 17-year-old whose father <coughs> cheated on his license and got him a racing license by altering his birth certificate. He named Mike Hayward, I <laughs> and he arrived in South Africa, and my partner in, in uh, motorcycle business, he liked to drink, and he was the first guy that got Mike Hayward drunk. In fact, we laid him out on the spears counter because he was out of it. <laughs> and uh, so I spent my, all my racing career in Europe with Mike. In fact, Mike came down with a 250 NSU and a 350 Manx, and he never rode the Manx because he, he thought it was too big for him. Then we got to a, a, a PE 200, a, a race meeting in Port Elizabeth, and the racetrack is quite near to where my friends live, so instead of loading the bikes on the trailer and having to tie them all down, I rode them to the track, and I rode the 7R, and I had a Manx Norton 500. And my wife Marlene rode that to the track and when she pitched up at the start with the Manx Norton the 500, Mike said, if Marlene can ride a 500, I can ride a 350. <laughs> so he got on the 350 for the first time. So, you know, I grew up with Mike. We came back on the Union Capital Line, we used to call it Union Castle Line. And we came back on the boat together and then we got invited to, um, you know, Littleberry Farm or something the Howard residence. And while we were there, we were at Mike's shop. Um, Stan Howard, Stan the wallet, you know, said, um, you should have Jim Redmond Rhodesia and Paddy Driver South Africa up on your van. And we said, we, we got no money, you know. So he said, don't worry, I'll do it for you. I'll tell you a bit story about that later. <laughs> so um, anyway, we, Paddy and I got a van together and off we went. Typical, you know, there was about 50, Lies with Manx Dortons or, or AJS and, and Wasters. And on a good day, you could, you know, there were Surtees and Harlem and the Grand Prix on the Indies, so those two places were taken. 
and then from third to about 20 enters, the place we sort of fitted in with, and on a good day you might finish fourth or fifth or sixth. And if you had a misgear or a little bit of a thing, you'd be down in 16th or 20th place because everybody was much of a muchness and we could all ride and you start. I was lucky enough that in 1959, at the Czech Grand Prix, I was a mechanic, so I could put a bike together, but I wasn't a tuner. I knew how they go together, and I could put them together perfectly, and one day they go fast, and the next day they don't go so fast. And I had no idea, whereas Gary Hocking could look at them and visualise the flow and, and do all sorts of things, so his bikes were always much quicker. So this, this day I happened to be in the race, I don't know what position, about six, seventh, eight, somewhere around there, with Tom Phillips. And Tom was blasting past me on the straights, and then I was passing him in cobblestone, in the villages that we went through, they were all cobblestone. And I didn't mind the cobblestone, so I kept passing him in the villages, and he passed me on the straight. And he said to me, you know, you would have been a sensation today, but that dog of yours can't get out of its own smoke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, he was a straight shooter. Most guys would never admit that you were riding better than them on the day. And it stood me in good stead because the next year um, at Assen, Tom had got a Honda. He, um, he said to his dad, you know, Honda are coming all the way from Japan to ride in Europe. And Tom's dad didn't say much, and he just said to Tom, they're not going 12,000 miles to lose. <laughs> so Tom immediately got hold of Honda, and they gave him the first tryout, Bob Brown and, and I think the TT, Bob Brown and Tom Phillips. Then when they got to um, Assen, they had John Hartwell and again Tom Phillips. And Tom crashed in practice and broke his collarbone. And I heard about this and I went to Tom and said, are you okay? And he said, well, mostly my pride, but I had a collarbone. So I said, well, I can't stay because um, I've got to go and get in the queue and try and pinch your ride. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, actually, you're the right bloke. He said, go and get to his wife, Betty, go and get Mr. Kabashima. Mr. Kabashima was the team manager on the Honda team. And he was a very good teams manager. When he phoned Japan, people jumped. And we found out the reason was that when Soichiro Honda opened up a business bolting second-hand uh, stationary engines onto push bikes, his first employee was Kawashima. So he was only second to Soichiro Honda. But we didn't know that at the time. We just thought he was a good manager. And Tom said, I think that Mr. Redman should be the bike one to get my bike. It was just a 125. And uh, he just turned to me and said, oh, Mr. Redman, please, would you ride our bike? You know? I said, who do I have to kill? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they put me on the bike and they said, look, um, Tom's son was very fast in practice, but he crashed and we don't like crashing. So please just go slowly and just ride the bike and finish it comfortably. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll go slowly. <laughs> you know, you get one chance, don't you? So, and I only had one practice left. The race was the next day. This was the last practice that I got. So I did a few laps and came in and they said, everything all right? I said, just this and that. 
And then I thought about the trek and I thought, this is it. And I went out and I did a really good lap. And uh, so the grid for the next day was Hocking on the MV, Ubiali on the MV, Redman on the Honda, mm -hmm. Spagiali on the over MV. <laughs> I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the press said, that's the first time that Holland, the Netherlands, have ever made a mistake in the timing. They always a Honda in, in front of the MVs. And I said, you bastards, you know, even if it's wrong, tell me, tell everybody how good I am. So anyway, the flag dropped and I thought, this is it, you know, please God, give me one lap. I'll fall off after that, I don't care, but just stay with me for one lap. And Hocking and Ubiali pushed off and I was on to Spagiari. And the poor bugger, every time he blinked, I was under him, over the top of him. And I went past the pits, Hocking, Ubiali, Redmond, Spagiari, and I looked in the pits and much as say, yeah, I didn't want to do that, but I, I could have given them a look. And anyway, we went on for a few laps and Spagiari, Spagiari crashed and thought, going to come in in third place. And then they signaled Degna's coming to catch you on the MZ, and I thought, that'll break. So, and it didn't. <laughs> they were much quicker than the Honda, so I finished fourth. But anyway, it sealed the riot, because the next thing, um, uh, Mobile said, that 250 uh, Honda of Hardwells has to run on Mobile. It's contracted to us. And Honda said, no, no, it's on Castro, we can contract it to them. <laughs> well, you better, and they said, he cannot ride. So they said, that's okay, we've got Bob Brown on. He rode in the TT. Mr. Brown hasn't ridden a Honda. If you've done some laps on a bike, you can ride something similar. He's been riding dawns, there's nothing similar. So they said, well, then that bike can't start. And the organizer said, there is one guy. <laughs> Jim Redman. He's, he's raced, he's been on a 125 Honda. He can ride a 250, never mind his uh, four cylinders and two cylinders. Back came Kodashima. Would I ride the bike? No practice, no nothing, no sight of that, no. You ride across the grass in the paddock and off you go. So I said, I'd love to ride the bike, but um, you know, I might hash it up and then you'll never ask me again. So he said, Jim, son, if you take the bike and run around in last place and just bring the bike home, I promise you, um, no matter what happens on today, the board is clean and the next weekend you get up 250 to do all the practice and all the race, no matter what happens today. So <laughs> I got the bike and of course they stuck me on the back of the grid over there. So I came over the other side where the pits are here. I said to Ike son, it's a 30 second um, traffic light, so it goes amber, count it down, tell me when it's 20, 25, and then go 26, 27, 28. Back row, when he went to 27, I thought, no, he watched the front row. And I was like, <laughs> and Gary Hopkins said he heard this patting feet on the thing, he thought, that's Redmond. By the time I got, you know, the, the, when, as soon as it went green, I was running at about 20 miles an hour. Came into the lead. 
I've got a picture of Ubiani and Hocking and me coming out of the packs like that. They came from the start and I came from the back. Didn't get penalised or anything. But luckily, those first hoppers, if you warm them up a bit too much, they would go down 100 metres, then they would die, and then they would go again after a couple of seconds. And luckily for me, it happened. So I was in the pack when I got to the first corner, and the bloody thing was like, would have thrown me off if I'd been with Ubiali and talking, I would have been on the floor. So anyway, I had the rest of the race to do, and I managed to finish seventh, which wasn't bad because there was a few um, other fast bikes, you know, I forget what, but anyway, um, seventh wasn't a bad place, and it got the bike home. And Honda then were on a mission of, they, they try you at random and pay you for the day's work. And so every week we sort of had to wait. And then we, everything we did, if you go to the loo, you go around past Honda to see, keep, them in, keep you in mind, you know. And, um, so I had my secured ride anyway for Frankenstein's a week later because they, he promised me and the seventh position was fantastic. And um, then we went on to Solitude and Tom's collarbone was better. And we sat in Tom's caravan, Tom Phyllis, Bob McIntyre, no, Tom Phyllis, Bob Brown, and myself. And I said, Tom's going to be ready to, to ride at the Ulster. Three riders, two bikes. One of us is going to get the sack. I reckon they're going to keep Tom and they're going to sack you or me, Bob. And he said, oh, well, we have to do our best now and see if we can beat each other. And that afternoon, I came around the corner of Solitude and practice, and I saw a bike on the floor, so I thought I'll keep him with the Japanese. So I stopped and parked my bike, it was only practice. Walked back expecting to find one of the Japanese guys who had crashed, and it was Bob. Smashed in the back of the, his, um, back, went backwards into the guard ride, and had blood coming out of his ears and things. And anyway, the ambulance arrived, and. He was talking to me and I said, are you okay? And he said, I've got a bloody headache second from now, but I'm okay. So I went back to the pits and I told Bernadette, I spoke to Bob, he's, they tell him to such and such a hospital, he's okay, off you go. And then we finished the practice and finished the day and then Bernadette came back and I said, you're right. And she said, he's dead. Oh. I said, it's not possible, I was talking to him. But apparently the helmet was all that was holding his head together. He got smacked in the back of the head with the guardrail. Guardrail girls, umpteen of my friends. And Tom was one of them, and Bob was one of them. So they took his helmet off and he, half his head came off with it. So, uh, you know, it was a piss-pot helmet we used to call them. <laughs> but um, that's all we had. Everybody had the same things and, and guardrails. The, put the cars back on the track and killed the motorcycle. It was one of the biggest things about racing in those days. You know, I always said, I want to win as slow as possible. You know? And I kept saying to everybody, I want to retire while I'm still alive. You know? <laughs> and people used to say, what about a new road record? I'd say, gee, I want to win without going that quick. You know? <laughs> I only want to win, that's all. And it's, it's certainly here, most of my friends, I've buried 150 riders. So about 15 a year died in those days in motorbikes and the car. 
Well, I don't know what their score was, but I always said it was one a month, and they said I'm wrong, it was 15 a year. And um, we, we got hardened to it, it was a crazy part of our lives, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I came round the corner in Assen, lapping a few guys, and I saw Peter Furbrose take the corner, and the bike flicked him, and it sort of flicked him and whacked on the ground. And I just thought, oh, that's Peter. And of course, those days, they used to just put a red, white flag out, the ambulances on the course, and you just pressed on. You're supposed to slow down. If you slow down, someone passes you. Don't they? You might slow an inch or two by the ambulance, but just press on. So I, as I came round, you know, they, they were picking him up, and then, put it, then the ambulance pulled away, and then they were mopping up the blood. So lap by lap, you saw the whole thing. And when I came in, they said, oh, Peter copped it. And I said, I saw it, you know. And I knew as his head hit the road, I knew there was nothing to, to save him. So, but that was life, you know. We, I stopped on the way into the paddock in Austria, and Peter Borson had a corner place there, and I pulled him. And I said, how'd you go last week? Because there were usually other meetings. We all sort of met at the Grand Prix, and then we drifted apart because there were two or three meetings every weekend sometimes, and then back together when there was only one. And he said, oh, big Dickie Dale had a bad one. I said, how bad? He said, the worst. Oh, oh dear, you know. It's just like that, you know. It was, it was crazy. And um, people don't realise today when you go to MotoGP and they've had, I think, three fatalities in the last 20 years. And we had one and a bit a month, you know. So it was a whole different game. And the bikes, you know, the bikes were getting so fantastic. When, with Honda trying to beat two strokes, and evenly, you know, today they understand that a 252 stroke is a match for a 504 stroke. We were racing 254 strokes against 252 strokes. So, um, you know, we were getting blown away, and so the Hondas made the 256 and the 305, 2986 for the 350, and the 504, and then the 5-cylinder 125 with nine gears and 22,000 revs, and a 50cc and the revs at 25,000. <laughs> And the FIM stepped in in their wisdom, you know, and they said only 250s are two cylinders, 500s are four cylinders. And we said, you know, it's to, to save money. The bikes today cost millions. And it's, they still, you know, keep to those kind of rules. And the factories are going to spend the money and make the bikes. And we could have had such bikes at the FIM didn't put their nose in do something stupid. Actually, I went, I was invited by the motocross guy, Holman, I forgot his name. He said, you're in Geneva, come round and we'll take you for, for um, dinner, lunch, on the FIM. I said, wow, if I can pinch a bit of money on the FIM, <laughs> <laughs> So I went round and we were, um, sort of having a nice lunch and the president I said, 
I've made friends with him, bring him back, I want to meet him because I've never met him, this Venezuelan guy, he's president now. And I remember Major Good. I mean, if you're only a Major, why would you be in Sibley Street calling yourself Major Good? You know, that means I'm not much good. <laughs> anyway, we were threatened all the time, you know, we did something wrong, you've got to lose your licenses. And I was sitting in my caravan in Clermont and I said, I think Major Good's walking down here. I mean, I didn't think he ever left the office. And what did you about mother works for Fraser's? Mike said, oh, I suppose he's come from my license and we'd just been to scrutineer and then he threw it out the window. He said he could pick it up. <laughs> so, and he, he came and said hello to us, you know, and they were arseholes. They really were fooled. <laughs> so they've got a new president, so this is a new president. So we arrived at the thing, and he's got the press there from Geneva and all that. And he gave me a present, a t-shirt and a cap with FIM over it. So I said, if I wear, wear this in the pits, you know, they'll scorn me because I've always said the FIM know nothing about racing. And the president said to the press, did you hear that? Jim Redmond says the FIM know nothing about racing. <laughs> This is not a bad guy, because anyone who can laugh at himself, you know, that's, this is not a major good. This is, and I've grown to respect him, really. He is the first one in the FIM that I've had any respect for. And we, he invited me to do the um, Monte Carlo and Monaco, uh, the, world, the championships, to give out the world championship things, and I had to do the MotoGP. So we're in this hotel in Monaco, and I saw on the, in the room, it said 800 euros a night for the room. And I thought, I wonder how that guy, you know, is he as good as I think he is? So I, when I met him downstairs, I said, I got a lot of respect for you for the first time. And I said, I've seen that these rooms are 800. I bet you I'm not paying 800 for these rooms. He said, what do you think I'm paying? I said, most people I'd say 500, you're paying 400. He said, how about 180? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're my man. <laughs> That's the sort of guy we got in charge of the FIM, and he's everywhere and into everything. And for once in my life, I really respect somebody at the end. Well, the other guys, you know, lower down, there's like a guy who does the motocross that I was motoring. Hell of a good guy and very good at his job. But up at the top end, where you know, you'd think there should be some brains, there's been nothing up to now. <laughs> and now we're in good hands, so it's good to know. You know. <coughs> oh, what else can I go and tell you about? The bikes. The bikes that we had, you know, they were fantastic. I always said the Honda 6 was a really dangerous bike to ride at the other man because you're so busy making music with the, the throttle that. You forget to look where you came from. <laughs> <laughs> Make all kinds of mistakes. And um, the 125, you know, I don't know if ever you've seen that part, so the 125. I mean, they, they make a lot more noise than the Honda 6, which makes a sweet, beautiful noise. And the, the 125 is louder, but uglier. And the bike is ugly to ride. All of us, we hate the thing. It revs at 22,000. If you let a rev drop under 10,000, it just goes up and stops. Mm -hmm. And I've got that Claremont friend as a, about three 
Hondas and three Yamahas and three Suzukis all going for their first lap. And I was somewhere in the middle of it. And as we went round the corner, I was changing down a few gears and in the second I saw my rope kind of go like that and my brain didn't tell my foot quickly enough and I put it in the next gear, I was pulling back through the gears. And of course I dropped the clutch with the, with the, the, the engine stopped. And it spacked me through the hedge. So much so, we're all in the line like that. And I just went out and there through the hedge. And the guy said, Did that happen so quick? We didn't even shut the throttle. <laughs> you were there, you were gone. You know? It just spacked me off. And um, a bit of a bike to start. If you miss it, you push forever. And then uh, they bring it down sometimes for us to parade. You know, and poor old Luigi, you know, he doesn't ride anymore because he's got to 80s. Well, he got to 82 and stopped. So he's about 80, coming up to 86. And um, poor old Luigi, because he got it. He won the world championship on it, so he got to, to ride. And when you were a bit older and a bit more clumsy and everything else, he had a really bitchy time at Festival of Speed, just to start it up and go down the hill and start it up and go up the hill. And the poor aggravation that he had, whereas the six or the fours, piece of cake, you know. No, we had, we had the best of the best time at, at that time, and then marred just by the accidents that happened. But then through it, it was, we sort of made fun of it. We used to say, it's actually, it's not a crash that kills you, it's the sudden stop. <laughs> Going fast doesn't kill you. Stopping fast kills you. <laughs> like if you come off and hit the wall, you stop too quickly. <laughs> So um, we, we joked about that and, and sort of you, you get through it, you know. But it does, does get close. Now we started the, 70, the 62 season. The 350 was Bob McIntyre, Tom Purse and myself on Honda, Gary Hocking and, and Mike Howard on MB. The five not bad riders. And Gary Hocking said, we're going to kill each other this year. We said, oh, shut up about that, you know, we don't want to talk about that. He said, we all know how to ride, but we don't know how to lose. And you can imagine, Howard, Hawking, McIntyre, Phyllis Redmond, going to the corner, who's going to shut up first? And Mike used to say, this is an easy game. If you're the first to do that and the last to do that, you win. Very <laughs> simple game. Anyway, Gary Hawking said that at the beginning of 62. At the end of the year, I was world champion, and Mike was running up, and the other three were dead. Mm. So it does sometimes get a bit close. You know. In fact, when Tom was killed at the Isle of Man, I got I was fairly good terms with Bob McIntyre, but he really helped me through. I said, oh, "It's bloody game now. Tom's gone," and um, you know, I said, "I'm just going to grab as much money as I can and get out of this game." and Bob was the one who settled me down and I came back to earth and a month later he died and just crashed at Orton Park, you know, a little silly race in the way and going like buggery, you know. And we used to, we then, um, well Honda put in a clause that if we crashed and hurt ourselves in a non-championship race, then if we missed 
a Grand Prix because of a crash on a non-champion race. Um, we had to give them back a thousand pounds every time we missed it. So we had a thousand good reasons that we went in holiday racing. And after the TT, there was always Mallory Park. The so we're all at Mallory Park, and I had a 350 Honda against John Cooper on a Norton. I mean, there's no contest. So I just came to squirt on the first lap, and I got him in a position coming into the hairpin when I'm going out. And I just kept him there. And he came in after the race and told everyone, that Redmond doesn't ride. If I'd have been on that Honda, I would have been lapping me, you know. And he didn't know about the thousand pounds. And then um, a, a few weeks later was the Dutch DT, one of my better rides. We pulled off on the 500s, Mike and myself on the Honda, Giacomo with a new three-cylinder. And I got away first, Mike second, and Giacomo passed us both down the straight. <laughs> He's only just got that bike. We had the four and it was a piece of cake, it wasn't in the race. And now, um, he's got the fastest bike in the race. So we were following him and I was behind and couldn't find a way through. So after a few laps, Mike came past me and I thought, yeah, you can have a go and I'll follow you. And as we went round the right hander behind the pits and changed direction, Mike crashed. So I was here and he was like bike and him sprawling along. So I was have to go right around them and Giacomo was around the corner and gone. So I'm off after him and I went a little bit down the slip road trying too hard too quickly. And when I passed the pits, it said 20 laps to go, minus 20 Giacomo. And unbeknown to me, I'd never had been beaten by him into second place right up to that time. I didn't know that until later with computers. Anyway, I went after him, a second a lap, a second a lap, and I pulled him in, pulled him, and I thought ten, a tenth of a second every corner, and that's a second a lap, and I got him down to nine, and then it went nine seconds, nine seconds, seven, and I thought, I've got you. And as I passed the pits with the minus seven, it wasn't a Japanese guy, it was Mike, he walked back to the pits and he said to me, so anyway, I caught him two laps from the end, and then passed him, and as I passed him, we went into a cloudburst. It just fell down on half the track. And we in this rain going for the first corner, and I saw three bikes in the mist in front of me, and I thought, if I can go down the inside of them, I'll dump them in Giacomo's way, and I'll have this one. <laughs> so I went down, and I, I recognised Cooper, um, Stanley, Stuart Graham, and I didn't know was they were racing for third. So we were coming up and lapping them. And I went past all three of them like a bit like this on the 500 in the rain, and looked under my shoulder as I pulled out, and there was Giacomo right at my backside. So um, anyway, I went off, we got halfway round, and then it was clear we were going full bore again, and then back into the rain, and, I thought, don't fall off, you know, it's so easy to make a mistake in the rain, especially when you're trying hard. And I got there, and uh, it's, I'm so pleased that I did it. Not only was it one of the best rides of my life, to, to haul Giacomo back 20 seconds is quite a lot. And in later years, I was doing a talk like this, and they said, who was the best ever? And I said, Mike, without a doubt. He said, what about Rossi? How many TTs has he won, you know? 
if you haven't won a TT, you're not in the race for the best ever. Not to respect from other riders. And um, so anyway, I said Mike was the best. But I said, I think in the end, because I was a better schemer, I beat Mike in Grand Prix more times than he beat me. And about six months later, a guy came up to me and he said, what you said there, I'm a statistician. That's a challenge, you know. <laughs> he said, I, I went, got the books out as soon as I got home. And he said, yeah, you beat Mike 96 times and he beat you 90 times or something. And I'm really proud of that, and, you know, because I did hold him up the best, you know. I mean, in a race, I, I get with bikes like Phil or Bellardi or Giacomo, and I think, I've got you. And Hailwood never once, until you cross the line, then you know you've got it. Because he does such crazy things. Of, he's right out somewhere in the middle of dust is flying and he still isn't going down and he pulls it back from somewhere and nails you. So I always say, when I'm over the line, I'll beat Mike. And the others, you know, on the last lap, I'm going to beat them. So then he said to me, in looking for whether how many you finish in front of Mike and all the rest of it. He said, you raced against Giacomo for four years. How many times did he beat you into second place? I said, I don't know, say half a dozen. He said, never. If you both finish the race, you always beat him. He said, the only one I found in 66, Mike first on the 350, Giacomo second and you third. I said, oh, well, I was going to win the 500 championship and Giacomo the 350. So if he was winning and I was Giacomo behind Giacomo, I mean, I was only there waiting <laughs> to fill the gap in case something happened to Mike. <laughs> so that's the only time he finished in front of me, but if it came down to the two of us, never once did he beat me into second place. Mm. So Agostini mm. never beat me in second place. <laughs> <laughs> the first person I told was Giacomo. He <laughs> 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 wasn't very pleased, I don't know. <laughs> side of things. What else can we talk about? Present day. If you go to the MotoGP, I went to the MotoGP in 04. You know I watch it on the TV. Yeah, I go to the odd meeting. And I went into Honda's and they said, oh, we better introduce you to the chef and he'll feed you. And use Nicky Hayden's side of the tent because you haven't got many fans. 04. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so in walked Nicky Hayden. So I said, they said, oh, Jim Glibber, Nicky Hayden. And he said, my hero. And he, I said, oh, thanks very much. And I said, what, why? He said, all I read about was Mike with his rich dad, stand a wallet, buy it. If you can't beat it, buy it. And uh, he said, you were from nothing and had no one and nothing. So he said, I always felt good that you could Whenever you beat Mike, it was good, you know. So um, I said to him, you're the only guy, in my opinion, that can take the championship away from Rossi. So I said, but you've got a lot, you need a lot of work next year, and then you could be world champion in 06. But Chef, what do I know? I'm only an old fart. <laughs> so he said, let's go and have coffee. I want to listen to this. <coughs> so I said, well, look, you know, for what it's worth, this is why I work it out. And I said, we do all this program, and then you've got to win at Assen, because you can. 
And if you win at Essen, you'll smoke them at the Gunnarsaka because you're too good for them there. But you just don't know. And so off he went in 05. And he did all everything. And in 06, he was world champion. And when he got it, he said, that bastard, not only told me I could do it, but he told me how I do it. I said, yeah, but you went out and did it. And he said, but you know, you saw the things. It's funny, you know, what, what MotoGP needs is a good dose of common sense. I'll give you an example. The one year that when um, Tony Elias was Moto2 world champion, I was in the pits, the GB pits, and um, you know, it's cash draw, and it's the only ones they supported, so they introduced me there, and I'd been helping the riders a little bit. And so Tony, um, we were at the Czech Grand Prix, and Tony Elias messed up the practice, and he was only fourth on the grid, but he was winning the races. But headstrong and unpredictable, he ran anybody and go down, no problem. And um, so Tony then fluffed the start and he was in 16th place. And I thought, ah, oh, please pick them off one at a time. And he did. He'd come up the back, wait his moment and pick them off one at a time. And I said to Carlo, the team boss, let me go and see what they're doing about the front six guys. And so I went to their place. I said, they won't notice me. I can stroll along the pits and nobody will think anything of it. So I came back and I said, they're all fast asleep. They're all putting out uh, first plus one second, and the next guy gets minus one second plus half a second. And in my bits, I want to know what's in front, what's behind, and what should I know. So they should be saying, Elias is coming on the board. Nothing. All six of them, there's about 20 guys in each pit, and six pits, and not anybody telling them. And we were going, so he got down to about 11th and 12th, I'll go and check again. They're still going plus one, minus one. Who cares? You're there, 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 you know. And anyway, then he got to about fifth place. Oh, Elias, Elias. <laughs> Two ladies swept past the one the race. And I thought, my pits, my wife only in the pits would have said, um, first, the first lap, bad start but coming. Mike or whoever, you know. And crazy that they, they, they're all 20 guys glued to their computers, nobody looking around to see what's happening in the real world. So those are the, the funny parts. And we were at the at, um, Saxon Ring a few years ago, and I was selling some goods in the dealers, because the dealers buy by more than one at a time, you know, so more money to be made there. And watching the racing at the same time. And they said, oh, um, to the dealers, be here at five o'clock, Danny Petrosa's coming along to say hello to everybody. So they said hello to everybody and then there was a silence and the guy said to me, hey Jim, have you met Danny, come up. So I went up on the stage and shook hands and met him and he said, what can you say to Danny? And I said, Danny, your career is the same as mine. All, your, all my life, I have Mike Howard. And all your life, you've had Rossi. And then just when I was beating Howard more times than he beat, him, beat me, along came Agostini to mix the pot up a bit. And just when you're beating Rossi quite a lot of times, along comes Lorenzo to spoil your fun. <laughs> so really, 
And then a girl came running up and said, Daddy, you're needed. And he said, oh, leave me alone, I'm with Jim. And he has that girl come to him every time so he can spend 10 minutes and get called away because he hates being with people, frightened of them. So anyway, the next day on the grids, he was um, first on the grids, and you get, I was talking to Nicky, who was about third, and I saw Danny standing in, nobody goes to talk to him because he's got nothing to say. So there's just a team boss standing on the back wheel and the mechanic on the left side and anyone can come along and have something to say. So I thought, well, I don't really know him, but should I go and talk to him? And I, I thought, sitting there by himself. So I walked across and as he saw me coming, his face lit up. So I said, how are you feeling? Good. And he said, yeah, I said, you'll win this one. He said, do you think so? I said, no, I know it. They can't beat you here. I said, the only thing that can beat you is if you fade after about 80% of the race. I said, which you tend to do, I watched you. So I said, if you start to fade at 80% of the race, just think about how I'm gonna kick your backside right around this paddock <laughs> if you fade. And he laughed and I walked away and the team buses saying, who's this Charlie, you don't come here. <laughs> anyway, he got the whole shot and was leading all the way and they got to about halfway and there was a big crash and they stopped the race. And because they hadn't done the two-thirds distance, they had to start the race again. So they started off the line with the time on the first race and Danny got the whole shot and led all the way. And so obviously the winner. And I walked past as he was getting all his stuff and he said, hey Jim, thanks. And I said, I hope you realise that I organised that crash. <laughs> and the Repsol guy said, take off your TV shirts, put on Repsol. You know? <laughs> and Danny, I reckon Danny, I like him a lot because he's about nothing. And he's like a son, really, you know what I mean? He's, he's, not, he's not young anymore, but he's still tiny. And he rides that bike so well. And we were watching this Sunday at Saxon Ring. And I said to Michelle, Danny can get past um, Lorenzo and Rossi. He won't get my kids, but uh, no. And she said, never, Danny won't get him. I said, at Saxon Ring, he can. And he did, you know, if you remember the race from Sunday, but um, he got another second there. But at the beginning of the next year, which was about two years ago, I think, I said to uh, Ralph, my German manager that used to help me with Germany and Austria, and I said to Ralph, you know, I could go to Repsol and say, give me 100,000 pounds for the year and a 500,000 pound bonus if I make Danny world champion. Because I think all he needs is someone to tell him he can win. And he'll do it, you know. And it's very specific and tell him where he's going wrong and all that. Because from the stands, we're all, we can all see what goes how wrong and it's much easier sometimes than when you're out there on the bike and you see only that section. When you're looking at the whole thing, you can see lots of things that you can tell the guy to boost him. And I reckon, I reckoned at the time, this was before my kids came along and seen it. <laughs> and I said to Ralph, you know, maybe we should do that next. He said, every race weekend we'll be at MotoGP. Hmm, no thanks. <laughs> I'd rather be where I belong with the the old farts, you know, because MotoGP, they had, don't have a life like we did. We had fun. 
You know, there was a prize giving. We put our suits on. You weren't allowed to go in a sports jacket. You could have a blazer and flannels and a tie. And we went to the prize giving, and they gave us our trophies and our money and everything else. And we all danced. They were dancing, and we all got pissed and <laughs> all the rest of it. You know, we we had a really fun time of it. We had some really good parties. There was one in a castle at Hockenheim. And as everybody came up for his prize, they had a fanfare of trumpets, all in the, the sort of alcoves of the, the castle. And these trumpets went off, and it just created such an atmosphere. And everything. Gary Hocking never drank, and he was lying on the floor, and they put a big bottle of martini or something on the table. And he never drank alcohol too, but I remember pouring it down from the table like that into his mouth, lying on the floor. And then he just won with MZ. And we pulled out the potted plants and were throwing them around. And he went to Water Carlin and said, Thank you so much for such a lovely bike. Here's a present. <laughs> and his muddy, muddy thing on his lap. So it really was a good party. And when we sobered up the next day, we said, Well, probably going to lose our licenses again. <laughs> Another warning, you know. And nothing happened. And then the following weekend, we went to the next race meeting, and they said, we've got a party tonight. Can we get another party going? <laughs> but those things happen, I think, that was once in a lifetime that I've seen such a happy time, you know. And we started paying the band some money to get go for after midnight, and about three o'clock in the morning, they packed up for somebody to put a potted plant like a combine or something. <laughs> all that kind of stuff and um, another good story is we were in Italy at Albio Marconi was a guy who had the Hotel Marconi at Bellaria and we used to go from the Czech Grand Prix to Bellaria and then Monza and there was a week holiday so we'd have uh, more or less a week on the beach there and Mike flung me an uh, Italian magazine and said look Ferrari have made a 2 plus 2 those little legless people in the back. And he said, you can put your suitcase there, your briefcase on the other seat, and it makes a good band for a world champion, you know? <laughs> so Elvio Marconi said, well, I'll phone Enzo Ferrari and tell him to come down for the bar. And we said, yeah, tell Enzo Ferrari to get his ass down here, you know? <laughs> he said, no, he'll come, he'll come. He's my friend, he's my brother, you know? So we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he came back from the phone, he said, he can't come tomorrow, he's coming Thursday. So Thursday morning, he said, don't forget, you know, so we had a shower, put some clean shorts on, no shoes, but clean shorts, and uh, waited for Enzo, but we knew he wouldn't come. Anyway, 12.30, a Ferrari nosed into the long driveway that he had, and Elvio went running out, and Mike said, huh, bloody salesman come to try to sell us some, some cars. We looked down there and outstepped Enzo Ferrari, <laughs> driven 300 kilometres to come and have lunch with us, you know. And we, us, we sat down and I said, we introduced him. And I said, Enzo, we're much younger than you. If we knew you'd have lunch with us, we could have driven up to you, two or three hundred kilometres. And he said, Jim, motor car racing is my business, but motorcycle racing is my passion. <laughs> and he said to come and have lunch with Jim Redman and Mike Hale, you know, it's fantastic. 
So we had lunch and some vino, <laughs> and then he said, have a, have a, I've got a two plus two, have a go at it. So I went out and drove him quite nicely up the streets, and Mike was a lunatic. <laughs> he did out of the seat, you know, and he got it in and rounded the red in every gear, and you know, we came flying back, and the poor Ferrari, when we stopped it, was sort of steaming, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, Mike, and he said, Enzo Ferrari, Ferrari, you know. Who gives a shit about that one? You know, you can stitch it up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we went back to the table and we knew that if you were racing Ferraris for the, in the Ferrari team, but you wanted a road car, he gave his drivers a magnificent, magnificent discount of 5%. <laughs> 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 They're going up the hard way, so we knew that. So he said, what do you think? We said, oh, it's a lovely car, you know. So he said, well, I'll give you a good price. And we said, price, Enzo, have some more vino, you know. We were champions, we were for nothing. <laughs> so he had a couple more vinos and he said, I'll tell you what, pay half each and I'll give you two. Pay for one, I'll give you two. So we got a half price Ferrari for lunch. We didn't charge him for the lunch. We let Elvio pay that. <laughs> Then we had a funny story because the next year we got our Ferraris and we were tearing around all over the world. And we were at um, Assen, and Assen is always on a Saturday. So there were a couple of events in England on Sunday, so Mike was flying back to England and then back to Spa the following weekend and rode in England on the Sunday. So he finished on Sunday, went to England on Sunday. So he came to my wife Marlene and said, Would you drive my Ferrari down to? Spa and save me coming back to Holland, I can come back to Belgium. And she said, Well, I don't feel funny driving yours, I'll drive ours and you can, Jim can drive yours. So Monday morning, off we toddled from Assen to Frankershams with our two Ferraris. I had Jimmy, my oldest son, and Marlene had uh, Brett, the young one. So she came up alongside and said, Hey, time to eat. So next village, you know, there were no highways. So the next village with a parking, I pulled in and she pulled in next to me and we went in for lunch. And of course, when we came out for lunch, the whole village is around these two Ferraris. <laughs> so we went to get in and drive away and the guy said to me, do you speak English? And I said, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, is that your wife? And I said, yeah. He said, Two Ferraris. I said, she doesn't like my driving and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we went with our two Ferraris. I think you're still talking about it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we had fun. What else? Somebody asked me a couple of questions. Now we're going to have time. Looks right. like my time's up anyway. So, uh, if you've got any quick questions, I can answer them, but they tell me yes.
question because it's not really loud at the back. So if you take the next question, can you repeat it so they can hear? Okay. The gentleman here. Yeah, Jim. Can you hear me? <laughs> because he was late. 
So then you've got that. But they just left everything to me. I, I really did what I, what I wanted to do. Like with Mike, when Mike came to the team, and everybody says, Mike came in on the team and Jim ordered him to do the 53 50 championship and Jim wanted the 500. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of bullshit because if you ordered Michael Howard to do anything, he tended to get stuck to that. <laughs> so, what actually happened is first of all, we were in Japan and we said that we're going to have three classes. You can ride three bikes in the, um, if you've got 125, 250, 350, or whatever, but you can't ride 250, 350, and 500 in a meeting because you go over the 500 kilometers maximum you can do in a day. But um, at Hockenheim, the place about that for sure, the only one you can ride the 350 classes, I think, was Assam because it's a lot of bends. So anyway, we decided, Mike had had four fairly easy world championships on the 500 MV, and we had never had our 500, so I would drive in the 500. Mike would get the 350 because I had four, three, four 350 world championships while he got four 500. And so we swapped that over. And then the 250, we said, we'll both go for it, see what happens, and work it out as we go along. And um, then we got the bikes. We went to Hockenheim, and the 2500 arrived on Thursday. And we saw them for the first time. Friday was practice, Sunday we've got a win. And uh, they never told us when. Sekiguchi used to come to me on the line and say, okay, Jim, son, be careful. Never once win or anything except the Japanese Grand Prix, the very first Japanese Grand Prix. And I'm on the star line and he came up with his usual, uh, be careful, Jim, son, but win. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you want me to do? Be careful or win? <laughs> I can't do both. Uh, another anyway, question, uh, maybe? We yes. Never, I, I'll just finish off. Sorry. Before. In fact, I've finished it now. There's something else I was going to tell you. Um, lost it. <laughs> it comes back again. So I told you you would have to do it happens to me. Uh, two questions, really, Jim. Um, how good were the brakes? How good how were the good brakes? Were brakes for, for brake fade? And with the nine-speed gearboxes, did you actually count through them? Or, or, or just good question. How good were the brakes and, and with nine-speed gearboxes and things like that? Somebody once said to me, which gear do you take that corner? And I said, look at what I want. It's probably got nine gears and the 250 has got seven and the 350 and the 500 have got six each. And I don't even know what gear I'm in. I seem to know, you know, this is where I, you know, when there's some maximum and by the foot seems to know take three back and two back and one. But I said, I don't know. I know when I'm in first because it's a headwind or something, and I know when I'm in top because I press for another one. There isn't one. In between, I And brakes, you know, then one guy said to me, How could you go racing with no brakes? You know, with those drum things, and they're not brakes, they don't stop anything. So I said, Well, the lucky thing is, we all have no brakes. <laughs> There's a mother who should think that he could slow it down enough. He could go a bit further and a bit further, you know. So, um, yeah, another, another question. Right, we, we thought, you know, we had twin drums with twin double meaning. We thought they were good brains. 
And now, when you put the brakes on the, on the bike, I did a lap of the TT in 07. I don't have new hips. You know, I've, I've raced for 17 years, and I've been riding around doing these parades and going a bit too quick and falling off a couple of times. <laughs> and my biggest crash in the world, when I buggered up my hip, was I was in Bruno and the boys arrived with the truck and they put a plank up and I walked in to say hello while they were untowing the boat. And I went to walk back down, I was still on the plank and it dropped and broke my hip. Oh. I'm racing one of which is okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'd had this hip, so um, we got to the TT for the centennial. And on Monday they gave us a bike to ride and we took around. And then the team boss said to me, I've given that bike you ride on Monday. On Friday we had only the bikes you could ride a bit. And um, I said, I gave Ralph Byers that bike you were on. So, and I said, no, it wasn't a bad little bike. And he said, well, I've got nothing left, so how would you like to ride McGinnis's when you bike from yesterday? Yeah, I can do that. So they lifted me on because I couldn't get on with my head. And sort of put my feet on the footrest and off I went. And I didn't know because when I came back in, and it was a fast bike, gee, you know, I mean, I always get pleasure in passing Phil Reed because he always had speed on me. And he was on an old bike, you know, I think it was a Jalera, a replica. And I was on the winning bike from yesterday. And I'm passing you know, twice the speed he was going. <laughs> Fantastic bike to ride. And I came in and I said, This is a very fast motorbike. And they, my son was here and he said, Yeah, Dad, we know. He said, At the pits, they see you leave and you do a parade up and you come in, so there's not much excitement. So what they did was give you the speeds through the highland. And they said, Oh, Phil Reed's just gone through at 285 kilometers an hour. And Jack Lowe's just gone through at 290. Jim Lemmon's just gone through a 360. <laughs> 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 and I, I said to Brent, this bike, I said, going through um, approaching the island, you know, you go down the hill and past the pub. And I always give them away because they always put go for a tune or something in the bike or whatever in the pub. So I always give them a little way, not in the racing, but in the parading. And I went through. The, um, the top and down the hill, and I thought, wow, this bike is moving, but it slows up the other side. Well, our bikes did, but this thing was going so fast up the hill that I thought it might stand on the back leg um, going over the top. So I took another gear in case it did, because if you do that, you jump like that, so like that. So even though it wasn't a gear, I did that. And it, then it went down the other side. and. I said to my son, I kept telling the bike, we don't have to go any faster. <laughs> <laughs> and my son said, did you think of shutting off? I said, if you don't shut a racing bike off when it's straight to you just think, keep it going, let it do what it wants to do. I said, but, um, you know, the, what's the big wall? Um, gee, I can't remember the name, but the big wall with the stone jutting out. We're... Um, Anyway, um, I said I shut off, you know, from from the 
Highlander, which is the fastest bike going down the hill. And I said, the, the corner got to be drunk before, so I shut off about half an hour too early for the corner, and I ran the base on and the bloody thing stopped. I had to sort of wind to the ground. And he said to me, I was about 75 at the time, and he said, Dad, 75 years old and 360k don't go together, you know. You should shut up. And it's a strange moment. Anyway, I think... One more question. One more Jeff, question. there's another one. Uh, gentleman just here. Yeah. With him on it, probably would have been reversed if we changed bikes. But with him on the little single and me on the four, he had the quickest bike. And um, people said to me at Monza, in practice, they went looking at the corners, and they said, Pravini, where he's getting time on you, he just goes into a Curva Grande, glued to the tank, and doesn't shut up at all. Oh, wow, I can get through there, but I have to sit up a bit and knock the speed off with a bit of shoulders now. And he can get through there flat. So, in the race, I nearly ran him when we got to the Curva Grand Lake because he's flat on the tank and got the foot on the back road to steady it. It's a typical Italian trick that he's going through there for more. But um, no, I had some good tussles with Pravini, and it was quite funny. We went to South America. And it was a disaster. We got there, Alan Shepard crashed on the MZ in practice. There were no ambulances, no officials, and nobody knew what to do. We had to get a bike and we went to the hospital once and take Alan down there and all that. And then we had a big fight with people. They sent a coach to take us back with the forwards. And the coach filled up with spectators. <laughs> we were left standing there. So we had to chuck them all out and they couldn't understand why we can get in and they can get, get out. <laughs> they didn't understand about it. So we had a crazy time there and in the race there was marbles, you know, there was stuff all over the track and it, it was really dangerous. And I had to win, I had to be first and second in the last two races. So Brenda and I, Aris and Japan, for second and first, first and second I win. Or if I lose both times to Provini. Anyway, I'm following him in the race and he crashed. And I thought, sure, I've won it. And I crashed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then we, he went past and went into the pits to get some straight down on the gear lever kept falling off. And I couldn't do it quickly and I saw the third guy coming. So I went off again. And this thing kept falling off and I kept having to bend down and put it back on. And um, uh, I, he, he won another second. I didn't keep that second place, and then I beat him in Japan and got the title. But everybody said what a fantastic ride he had with that slow Marini against the fast Honda. <laughs> Boy, you were so wrong. You know? With him on, I reckon if we changed bikes, the weight difference would have made the Honda faster. But it was just enough to give him the edge in speed. And he's a good rider, you know. Did you see him just before he died? I'm sure he was about three times as big as he used to be. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Redman. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.